Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead. It's a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Native Son, which is Richard Wright's 1940 left screed about racism, crime, Chicago, and really irritating rich white ladies. <laughs> so why Native Son? Um... Well, for me, at least, uh, I needed another way to uh, just piss myself off other than going on Twitter.com. So, um, yeah, so so just if anyone is looking for a way to just get real mad about how about America's long history of uh, being shitty and ruining everything, Native Son is there for you. Um, so just keep that in mind. It's it's just also a great book. This is I don't know it as well as Megan and Tristan do, but um I I have read it at least. Uh <laughs> so <laughs> I get some points for that. Um I mean it, it's it, long. Like it is. You do get it, some points. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a long one. Um it's also great, like it's a it's a really fast read. Uh and it in this in this way that's like interesting maybe we'll talk about um it's super like true crime and it's also super like crime and punishment and it's also just mostly like getting just punched in the face um <laughs> it, it, it's like it's confusing and suspenseful and there's also no suspense uh which is which is yeah. incredibly interesting um it's also a tons about shame um and fear along with being about racism and racist violence. And uh, there's this uh, affect theorist called Sylvan Tompkins and um, who made me so mad the first time I ever had to read his work <laughs> that I just like threw the book away after I was <laughs> done the class. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but also like he says this stuff about, but now I'm now he's sort of growing on me. And what he says is that, uh, like shame is so complicated that you actually shouldn't even say shame because it's, because it's too like because people think that they know what they're talking about and they don't. Right. Um, and this book actually sort of like illustrates that point in in a million interesting ways. Um, it also just like genuinely, it's a very physical. It's like a very physical experience of reading it. Like I just did feel like I rolled the window down and stuck my head out the, the out of the car and just like started going 90 yeah. down the freeway yeah. and just like my face is gone but I'm better for it. Yeah. <laughs> so this is very very loosely based on a real crime. Yeah. Um which is part of why it reads like true crime. There's also like uh Paul Rabinowitz talks about this. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, unlike uh, most other true crime, it is not a reactionary uh, piece of shit, but a pretty cool left object. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it also just reminds us that that's always possible, right? Like, no yeah, genre yeah. has to be 100% one thing. Um, so I, your instincts are really on in that sense, Katie. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, this is the weird – this is like I, uh, I know a lot about this book, but um, – because it's like one of my touchstone books, like the way that um, Rob Roy is for Tristan. I mean, look, Robinson Crusoe is probably a better choice, right? Uh, yes. Although, like, I feel like you like this book because its politics are compelling and, you know, and, and, and formal. Well, I, I mean, okay. So, like, I like Crusoe for, like, the formal kind of innovations it's doing and dunking on its horrible politics. Right. <laughs> Whereas you like this in part because of the really interesting political things that it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's true. I mean, but like both of them say ask interesting political questions, right? Yes. No, they yeah, they exactly. Yeah, they they do. I, I guess it's just like in 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 Crusoe, uh, we sort of get to those interesting political questions in spite of itself, whereas here they're much more like <laughs> core to what it is. Well, and that's mm-hmm. true of Katie. You're like you're fa- you're it's not your favorite, but Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Which is like it allows us to have interesting political thoughts. Yeah, totally. Like, like it does more than it thinks it's doing, and it thinks it's doing a lot. Oh yeah, it thinks it's the. It's like it's very magnanimous in its intention. Yes, mm. yeah. but there's all yeah. There's also just like w- we should do that. We should do it one day. Um, but there's just there's also stuff that like really does resonate even um, like not just as like a a, a tearjerker wank off yeah. book. Oh yeah. No, and no, and I mean, and and a part of why you know, which I, I've said, we, we've mentioned Native Son in the past, that I like it. I like Native Son, which and Megan, I know you'll get into this because of like what an attack on like the kind of sentimental tradition it is, and and very d- deserved. But the sentimental novel did accomplish a lot of extremely important political shit, and like Uncle Tom's Cabin, despite all of the shittiness around it. I mean, yeah, like I mean, it is like very central to kind of uh, abolitionism and you know the mid nineteenth century. Right. And he's responding to something pretty specific in the sentimental tradition, if that makes sense. Like he's, yeah. he's mad at, at Harriet Beecher Stowe, but he's like, um, he's mad at a lot of people who he thinks of as doing like nothing like a black liberation, but, but a, a matter of feeling, which I think is like, there's nothing wrong with matters of feeling, but he thinks that's like not what he's doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's what's interesting is like, yeah, he wants you to have he wants you to have different feelings and he right. thinks that different feelings will lead to action, I think. Um, yeah. not yeah. crying. Right. Yes. No, definitely. Um, but anyway, so like my point is that like with Rob Royer, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Native Son, all those books are like twice as long as they deserve to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and there are a couple like big fat books that I think are like they don't feel like they're 500 pages, but this one does. Um, that's, it, 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 it's it's certainly the last part. Certainly the last part does, yeah. Oh, oh what yeah. a fucking slog that is. Yeah. It's long. Um, but I've taught this book a bunch in a ton of context. So, like, I taught it in my class on literature and photography with the book 12 Million Black Voices um, that write, did the – uh, the writing for, and then I taught a class on 20th century literary debates, and I talked about Wright, Baldwin, Ellison, Hansberry, and Saunders Redding. Uh, Tristan and I talked about it in our lit and citizenship class. Um, it's a really angry book, which I think, Katie, you sort of alluded to. Um, and I've had a ton of different reactions to it during my relationship with it. Um it is one of three books that I read in high school, college, and graduate school. Uh, why they teach it in high school is an utter mystery to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, maybe because it's like they need a book by I, – I suspect it's because they need a book by a black author, and this is like a super famous one. Right. But it, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a heavy choice. lift. Yeah, heavy lift for high schoolers, definitely. Yeah, bit of a tough one. Bad, bad choice. I can also think of like 30 other examples, but I think probably like the AP Lit Study Guide is not, you know, here's let's, you know, like there's tons of choices. We could, we could always read some Maud Martha and that would be, you know, like, no, people are right, not thinking right. that way. Um, so I 
for an, it's not a very good novel as novels go, but it's possible to read it in a lot of ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I also care a lot about Wright's relationship to the African-American literary canon, the American canon as well, and that overlap, of course, and uh, and the history of left novels. Um, plus, I think it's a fairly natural pick for our first African-American novel, particularly because it's, it's such a left book. Mm-hmm, yeah. And and I do like so I mean and I totally know what you mean about it be, it being not a very good novel but also I I want to be like Wright is an extremely good writer like and the reason like it reads like that is a very deliberate sort of strategic choice by him um, that's making you think really kind of critically about what it is as as like it, it, like formally in addition yeah. to all the political questions right mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and which actually this gets to why I really wanted to talk about this. Um, I, I do. I love Wright. Um, I think he's an amazingly innovative novelist. Um, this is, you know, clearly well outside my scholarly period, although, as, as Megan just said, um, you know, I, I did have the we had the chance to teach it together um, in, in a, in, a cl- in our literature and citizenship class, which is still my favorite class that I've ever taught. Um, mm-hmm. But like, uh, you know, obviously, this is a novel with an extremely important and very left critique of racism in America. And, and race and material conditions, um, you know, and Megan, I know you're going to talk, uh, you know, a, a lot more about that. Um, so I'll just kind of focus on something else that I'm really into about Wright and Native Son in particular, which is, you know, the, that question of like the novel form itself. Um, and because of all the things that readers of the 18th and 19th century novel had sort of come to expect, um, you know, like an investment in the individual qua individual, uh, a protagonist with whom we're asked to sympathize at the level of the individual, some kind of coherent account of the self and like the liberal subject, like a lot of this stuff that we've talked about on the show with like 18th and 19th century literature. Um, Wright gives us like none of that, <laughs> right? No. Like, um, which is formally intriguing, um, but I also think it goes to Wright's political account, which is all about the structure, right? Like individual intention, um, and probably even more so, individual feeling just does not matter, or at least not in the way the novel had sort of historically encouraged us to think that it did. Um, you know, so like for, for Native Son, you know, it, it's it's totally illegible without first understanding the material conditions around the individual, mm-hmm. right? Um, and yeah, again, as we said, this is a novel that famously rejects the tradition of sentimentalism. Um, but in some ways, I feel like it's also putting a lot of pressure on the whole account of what the novel is that we do get out of those kind of previous centuries. Oh, absolutely. And he's really like, I think it's always worth noting that Wright is one of those people who's kind of read everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you see a lot of, um, you know, you can see all these glimmers of uh, obviously somebody like Dreiser here, but Mm -hmm. he's famous for being a big fan of like Dostoevsky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That all that makes good sense. That makes really good sense. No, I think that like help that is helpful because it, it. it explains why there are so many characters who seem like they actually do belong in a sentimental novel that are in oh, here, but like, but but the 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 sentimental novel things don't happen to them. Yeah, and well, and, and even to, to kind of think forward to our next episode of Benito Sereno, right? It's like they're like characters who are thinking in the logic of sentimentalism and don't understand that that's not the world that they're operating in, and and I think even more fundamentally, cannot be the world right. that they're operating in at this moment in history under these specific you know uh, conditions of race and material conditions more broadly. And they're not the same novel; like they don't actually function similarly at all. But uh, that the 
totality of white supremacy, there's no outside of it. No, yeah. no, not not at all. Um, it, 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 which it, it, you know, for for anyone in this is right. I mean, and I think right. that we'll we'll get into it. Like one of the mistakes that some of the white characters think is that they do have that kind of position where they can that they don't just get read, you know, within these structures. And no, it it, it doesn't work for anyone. Right, and and something that I think is like really actually quite interesting that he does here is that he's he does think about whiteness sort of variably Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so he's really able to sort of like see white people who have a sort of like left uh purpose differently than he sees like rich dummies yes he does although i i would say even for the ones like you know the communists in this book who get it more I still think even for them, the like this sort of like there's always the kind of false lore of that like kind of liberal subject position that like even when they do get it at some sort of intellectual level at a sort of an emotional and experiential level, it it still is something that's like almost impossible for them to reconcile. I mean, I think Max is slightly different. I and I, I really want to talk about Max because yeah, I like yeah, I yeah. I actually have questions for you about that specifically with that like devastating final scene of the novel, right? And he's like, yes, right. Actually, does sort of like, um, and this is like interesting. He doesn't actually think of Jews as being in exactly the same racial category. I mean, he thinks mm-hmm. of Jews as being like having an affinity with black people in the way that other white people don't. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there are parts where you can see that, like, um, there's there are all the parts where they talk about, where, like, other characters talk about um, communism and, like, what it what it, they think it is. They, th- they just say absurd shit that's, like, yeah. have you been hanging out with any Jews? You right. know, like, yes, yeah. Do they use their hands a lot? You know, like, they say that, these, like, yeah. insane yes. things. Yes, yeah. But, yeah, Max is, like, a, I, I have questions, too, that... <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about the degree to which this novel thinks about determinism. And as part of that, we're going to be thinking about uh, institutions, including the prison, religion, family, and housing. Okay, so I'm going to do the summary of this book. I'm actually going to follow the three-part structure that Wright gives to the novel. Um, I think he gives shape to the narrative um, I think that shape is a square. Uh, this is not like a subtle <laughs> book, and it doesn't have much, as Tristan said, psychological characterization. Um, but book one is called Fear, and uh, Bigger Thomas wakes up in the little kitchenette apartment that he shares with his brother, mother, and sister. First thing, their apartment is invaded by this giant-ass black rat, um, we know how I feel about rats. It's uh, it's a scene of abject terror for me. Um, so Bigger straight bashes it to death with a frying pan. Um, you know, again, no subtlety whatsoever. Uh, he then walks to a pool hall to meet up with some friends of his. They plan this robbery uh, that none of them seem to want to carry out. Uh, so he and his friend Gus instead go to this, uh, movie and in the movie, there are all these like rich white people. It's a, it's a news brief. And 
in the movie theater, they have this jerk off contest, which is a scene that was cut from the book of the month club edition because duh. (laughs) Um, But bigger has to then show up. He has a new job as a chauffeur at the home of uh, Mr. Dalton, who we know later in the book is a, is a slumlord. Like he owns a bunch of kitchenettes. He's such a kindly liberal who gives ping pong tables to the local boys club. He's very, uh, he's, he thinks of himself as a nice person. He's yeah. a good landlord. <laughs> he's a good right. landlord. He's a good slumlord. That's a thing that exists. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, they work for their money. Uh, so Dalton lives in Hyde Park because like, of course he does. Uh, or maybe North Kenwood. Yeah, it, I think it would be more North Kenwood. Uh, 4,600 block of Drexel. Uh, just just drove down it the other week, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's a v- extremely fancy part of South Chicago. It's not. It's um, people already know this probably, but it's with it, it's uh, just over the red line. Just like what becomes redlined on the south side in the twenties. Right. Yeah. So on on the other side of uh, east of Cottage Grove. Uh, which is still today yeah. like a big kind of dividing line. East of Cottage Grove is white, very affluent. West of Cottage Grove is 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 black and and very poor. Right, and there's also uh, like a northern boundary, which is uh, Bronzeville. Right. Yes. Yeah. Check out the color of law if you want to read about why people live in what neighborhoods. Yeah, there are a number of like absolutely amazing books. Um, Kianga Yamada Taylor has a new one uh, that's that's very very good. But yeah, so, uh, okay, so Dalton and his wife, who is blind, again, no, you know, some big fat hammers to the head here, uh, definitely think of themselves as extremely nice rich people. And they are, they've been very magnanimous to bigger because they give him a job. Uh, he also meets in this initial meeting, their daughter, Mary, who doesn't know why bigger isn't in a union and says to her father like oh you're just a big old capitalist isn't he a big old capitalist bigger um because she's a fucking moron yeah despite you know we we all love a commie but this is not a smart lady uh and so that night she and her boyfriend jan who's also a communist and slightly less irritating um force bigger to take them to a restaurant on the south side so they can do uh racist tourism and they get shit-faced in the back of the car while bigger drives them around they go through washington park um again for people who are sort of tracking this as a chicago novel okay so when bigger gets mary home she is so sauced that he has to carry her into her bedroom um, but once he and Mary are in there, her mother walks in, who, let's remember, is blind, a uh, blind white lady. Uh, Bigger covers Mary's face with a pillow to keep her quiet uh, with her mother in the room. Her mother says, you're stinking drunk because she smells the rum, but she doesn't sense or hear that Bigger is there. Uh, she leaves the room. And of course, by the time... She leaves the room. Bear has accidentally killed Mary, suffocated her. Um, and because this is the kind of book that bankers' daughters aren't supposed to cry over, uh, what happens next 
once he sort of contemplates the body is that he decapitates her and shoves her body into a coal furnace in the basement. Yes. And, and just to note that the line you said about that bankers' daughters aren't supposed to cry over, he directly says that in his like explanation of the origins of the story that he that like yeah, yeah. That he wanted to avoid that at all costs. Because he had white women either tell him or write him that his first sort of big uh, published work, which is Uncle Tom's Children, had made them feel very sad for black people in the mm-hmm. South. And it is that is an amazing uh, book, but yeah. It is an amazing book, uh, but it, it just does a different series of things. And a lot of it does take place in the South, which um, I think people certainly wrongly have perceptions that it's like, racism is bad there and it's fine up no- yeah and and also that you have a good cry you're a good person and then you can move on and not do anything or think critically about yourself and your relationship to structures right. yeah um okay so the book two is called flight which again like n- super subtle <laughs> super subtle book here um bigger goes to see his girlfriend bessie who he definitely dislikes um and she is kind of whiny, but like most people in this book are extremely terrible. So slightly whiny is not too bad. Um, and so, but Bigger goes back to work and he's cry- kind of trying to pr- pretend nothing bad has happened. Like he's trying to act normal. Um, but there's already this total dickhead private detective there. Um, Bigger has constructed this extremely clunky, bad cover story where he's making it look like Mary's gone to Detroit, um, which mostly just confuses everybody. Um, so when he talks to the PI, he kind of makes it seem like he sort of throws shade over Jan. But when the PI confronts both of them, Jan is clearly confused. Um, but he's actually not that shitty about it because I think he has a sense that Bigger is part of like the plot, the bigger plot that is the novel. So his like not exactly genius scheme is working out. So Bigger writes a fake kidnapping note. There's this really funny moment where he's trying to figure out what the uh, hammer and sickle symbol looks like. <laughs> yes. So he can make it seem like she's been kidnapped by communists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. But he passes this under the Dalton's front door. Again, not a great plan because the shit really hits the fan once they think she's been kidnapped because the cops show up. And a bunch of reporters who the newspaper as an institution is also very present here, um, whether we have a chance to talk about that or not. But the cops start searching the house. So we all know where this is going. In the meantime, Bigger is supposed to clean out the furnace to make a new fire. This is part of his job. And uh, so remember how he like stuffed a whole ass body in there? Mm. Um, The whole place fills with smoke. One of the reporters is pissed off because of the smoke and starts to go through the fire, the ash himself, and he finds an earring. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> right, the, yeah. the groundhog looks in the camera. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Um. <laughs> and and the jig is up. So, or you know, sort of. Uh, so Bigger has to take off, and he goes first to see his girlfriend Bessie, and he confesses the whole deal to her, but. She reminds him that even though the killing was an accident, the cops will say that he raped her, Mary, which he didn't. And then he's definitely done for. Mm -hmm. Um, Bigger drags poor Bessie all over the south side while he's on the run, hiding on rooftops and abandoned buildings while the cops and a mob 
close in on them. He has these moments where he's like tracking himself in the newspapers. Uh, and while they're in one of the abandoned buildings, bigger, lovely guy thinks that Bessie is dead weight. So he rapes her, beats her to death with a brick and tosses her down an air shaft only to realize that all the money they had was on, on her, in her purse. Mm. I mean, it is, it is like, I mean, just the whole book is very brutal. It is, it is like to me, the, the probably most brutal thing in the whole book. And it's also the moment when I say that, like, and, you know, Megan says that, like, he's not like, you know, Wright is not giving you a novel, a novelistic protagonist who you're asked to kind of sympathize with in the way that, uh, you know, readers of the novel kind of typically had been. This to me is like where you see that clearly. It's like, you're not, your access point to this character is not that like, oh, I feel so bad, like an individual level for him it, it's like and and in fact I, this is the murder that really i think like it like just pushes that possibility out out the window oh for sure anyway okay so book three is called fate again like oh dick love you yeah. but buddy yeah. but yeah, yeah. <laughs> really okay so this book begins with a very like russian novelly sentence which is there's no day for him now and no night uh Bigger, of course, is in, in prison by this time, or I guess in the in jail. Um, initially, he doesn't eat, drink, or really even move. And then the trial scenes begin on the inquest, and Bigger begins to be more observant. So early into the legal proceedings, Jan comes to visit Bigger. And he offers him the services of this guy, Boris Max, who's this communist lawyer. Uh, most of the section early on here alternates between people uh, coming to visit Bigger, like his mother and his mother's pastor, scenes where he's walking from the jail to the courthouse and there's this like white mob from whom we get these uh, these short sentences of them screaming at him and lynch him and stuff like that. Uh, and the courtroom scenes, which involve testimony from people like Dalton and, uh, and these really horrifying displays. Uh, famous one is that they use Bessie's physical dead body as evidence. Um, again, like Bessie is this uh, object of abjection for us, I think. Uh, and, you know, he inevitably is convicted. Again, I think the novel starts, and we know that to a certain degree. Um, and his lawyer has uh, this description. <laughs> of institutional racism and poverty that goes on for like, uh, like a billion pages. Yeah. It's just yeah. a speech. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to read and not cause it's brutal just cause it's like long. Yeah. It's an essay. Yeah. It's, it, it makes some pretty good political points. But, but, oh yeah. yeah. Like there are parts of it that are great, <laughs> yeah. but, but they're sort of buried. Like, again, it's just like not a very readable form. Yeah. No, it's not. Uh, but something he says that I, that I pull out is that uh, Max says the complex forces of society have isolated here for us a symbol, a test symbol. The prejudices of men have stained this symbol like a germ stained for examination under the microscope. The unremitting hate of men has given us a psychological distance that will enable us to see this tiny social symbol in relation to our whole sick social organism. So he is like telling you how to read this book. Yeah. Yes, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then again, we know that he's been convicted after this. And there's this 
really sort of strange final scene where Max says to Bigger, you're going to die. And if you die, die free. You're trying to believe in yourself. Um, And Bigger responds, I reckon I believe in myself. I ain't got nothing else. I got to die. And he says, Mr. Max, you go home. I'm all right. Sounds funny, Mr. Max, but when I think about what you say, I kind of feel what I wanted. Makes me feel I was kind of right. Uh, I ain't trying to forgive nobody, and I ain't asking for nobody to forgive me. I ain't going to cry. They wouldn't let me live and killed. Maybe it ain't fair to kill, and I reckon I really didn't want to kill. But when I think of why all the killing was, I begin to feel what I wanted, what I am. Uh I didn't want to kill, but what I killed for, I am. It must have been pretty deep in me to make me kill. I must have felt it awful hard to murder. Um, and so it's that his his point is that uh, he has no he has nowhere to turn, but what he does is he acts. Right. Right. That's what he that's what he says. Um, when a man kills, it's for something, mm-hmm. and then he. He says something to the group. I'm all right for real. I am. And then, and then Max walks away and that's the end of the novel. So, so what, just a quick question. Like, why is it, or I don't know. One thing that I can't not think about is that everybody automatically agrees. Like Meg, as you just said, that, um, he must have, that that killing is meaningful. Yes. Like even earlier than this, it's like, oh well, you you must have um, you know, like like even instantly when Jan is like, um, yeah, I know I didn't do it. Um and uh but I I forgive you for like trying to frame me or whatever. Um and you did kill like you must have meant you, you must have meant something by that. You know, you you made a statement. You did you did something. Um and like this agreement that that like that killing is in killing is must be an act of meaning or self expression mm-hmm. is was um I don't know well, I got and, stuck and there's on it. there's this other two like uh, yeah and actually there's a passage in the book that I kind of want to look at a little bit later where like um basically Bigger's like that he finally sort of like kind of feels something other than fear in in the moment mm-hmm. when he commits the crime the first crime and that's that he he acted in a way that like they that basically society didn't like expect him to and yet there's also like the pervasive like criminalization of like particularly the black man in the white kind of social conscience you know so it's it's like it's it's this it's this very Mm -hmm. like troubling tension between like finally feeling that you acted in some way but in a way that just then goes to like perpetuating the structures in which you're like always overdetermined and read into you know yeah i mean it's it's like everybody thinks in the in the novel i guess that this is like his moment of quote agency right right yeah while it also thinks that this is determinist and you know if you're a smart reader that he's gonna kill somebody as soon as we see the daltons well and 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 i think too that like part of what again here is happening and you know we'll talk about this more though is right is that like that that part of what we're seeing then is like what agency means to like the kind of like liberal version of the subject doesn't 
is not possible or doesn't make sense under these conditions. You know what I mean? Like that, right. that it's a, it's a fantasy and it's actually a very destructive fantasy. Um, and we should never lose sight of the fact that one of these two murders matters and one doesn't. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's an action well, that he kills Mary, but it's just like an inevitability or not an inevitability, but it's like a, it's because when he kills Bessie, it's only evidence that he is capable of these things and not actually like a tragedy in and of itself. So, okay, context wise. And um, so Richard Wright is born in Mississippi in 1908 uh, and is then part of the second great migration. He moves to Chicago in 1927. Um, there's this story that he tells in Black Boy that's part of his sort of like um, <laughs> literal li- literary education where he uh, – is his his boss asks him to he gets a library card because he his boss tells him to do this and he's not allowed to check out books himself but only on behalf of his white boss so he has all this like he does this really cringing minstrel scene in that book where he goes to the library and is like i can't read i can't do this but what he ends up doing is checking out books for himself so he's Mm -hmm. in almost every sense an autodidact um there's a truly horrifying children's book of that, which is like oh, wow. Richard Wright in the library card. Um, yeah, wow. It's pretty nuts. Because people are like, oh, yeah, children should see that he had like the, he was like sufficiently age until they get a library card. And it's yeah. like, oh my God. Um, liberalism everywhere, friends. Yeah. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Right. You know, like a library card makes him into this writer, which it does, but anyway. Um, Okay, so he moves to Chicago in 1927. He later lived in New York and in France. Um, all the while, he, he in France in particular, he helped publish a number of young black writers. Um, he's part of the Southside Writers Group. He's uh, sort of variably involved in other writing culture, writing communities, and sometimes not. Um, he was, as probably most of our audience knows, a committed leftist throughout his life. First, he's a communist and then a socialist, although he does some pretty weird things um, where he's at, at some point like part of the this writer's conference that's actually done by the CIA. Uh, <laughs> cool. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the, the thing that I love about Wright is he's actually like, he has a pretty coherent politics, but he also does some things that are completely insane. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I love about the CIA is that all of them were pretending to be communists. Totally. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and then, like, he writes this very famous essay called I Tried to Be a Communist. And the reason he writes it is because he's critical of the party. Um, not that – because he's still a leftist. But, like, he's not good at being in a party. Like, he's one of those guys who's just, like, not well-suited to – like a party ideological purpose. Um, He published poetry and essays in a bunch of left magazines in the 1930s before publishing his first collection of fiction, Uncle Tom's Children in 1938. Um, On the success of that, he gets a Guggenheim. And during um, during that fellowship, he publishes Natives. It allows him to complete Native Son, which he publishes in 1940. Um, Native Son was fucking huge. The Book of the Month Club selected it. Uh, it was an expurgated version. 
Um, I'm still sort of mystified as to like why <laughs> the book of the month club selected it. Um, it's a long yeah. book. It's a commie screed. Yeah. Um, and I love that they had the problem they had was with the, the jerk off scene and not yeah, that's the problem with, with that book. The scathing indictment of not just white supremacism, but white liberalism, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm like, do they think it was like an indictment of violence? Like, maybe? uh, yeah so who knows why but um it's also again like you're right tristan because he's explicit in his afterward that he wanted to write a novel that bankers daughters couldn't cry over right yeah yeah um he also like he published a ton of stuff after that and somebody emailed me to talk about the outsider i love that book so much it is so long and even weirder than native son and Richard Wright loves Kierkegaard so much and it's so like why and it's it's like existentialism. It's really strange and I love it so much. Um, but nothing blew up like Native Son, which isn't super surprising because he's, he's just not good at doing like genre or making people happy <laughs> as a published <laughs> writer. Um, right. Again, very interesting figure. Uh, but his influence is like it's fucking everywhere in 20th century fiction. He's uh, Franz Fanon talks about Native Son and black skin, white masks, and and he's in unexpected places. So like Simone de Beauvoir's America Day by Day is inspired by a conversation with Richard Wright. Um, he writes a um, introduction to um, being in nothingness in French, mm-hmm. uh, which is again like very strange. And critics talk about this novel all the time, and it's still one of the most important left novels of the 20th century, really any century. Um, and and yeah, yeah, it's, and, and it's also, very interesting. I mean, that the stuff you mentioned about just like his, you know, kind of no, never caring about pissing people off and actually trying to. I mean, you know, like yeah, that might make someone a little bit taxing to hang out with, but like. If you actually really want to do meaningful kind of like literature that does really meaningful political critique, um, that's pretty cool. You know what I mean? Like it is, yeah. It's it's kind of like an essential position or otherwise so that you don't just end up producing like vapid liberalism, basically, you know. And he never like he just never does the thing that is expected of him as a particular kind of black writer. So like there's a um I can't even remember if it's in White Man Listen or if it's in one of his other books where he goes to Africa and he's convinced that like, oh, this will like help me grapple with something important about myself. And he has this interaction with um, one of the people who lives there who and and it becomes clear to him that like this person and he have nothing in common because he's an American. And and this is like he he has a lot of moments where like his blackness is not made like essential to him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Would right. And 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 the international experience is so like at that moment in the twentieth century. Right. It's like that. That. I mean, obviously, like the the whole the whole world, you know, post in and post empire is is structured by racism. But it, it also like the way that plays out specifically does vary from place to place. Right. In the United States, it is uh maybe particularly in that like kind of first half of the twentieth century moment. It j- just looks uh, different than it would uh, abroad in places. Um, it does look different, but there are a lot of black 
writers in the mid 20th century who think of themselves as part of that conversation. There's a great um, Penny von Eschen book about this. And, and, and it's about the sort of like, like commitment to decolonization on the part of American writers. But, and Wright shares that, but he's just like not, he doesn't think of it as being like, he thinks of it as a matter of like political uh, urgency and not a matter of like, uh, essential blackness. Um, okay, so like we have a bunch of questions about this book, but I think like one of the big ones that people always talk about, Tristan, you already alluded to this, is like whether or not this is just a story of like utter determinism. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like, I think that it largely is and pervasive throughout all of the kind of like white supremacist state. But I also like, so, okay, so I like, Max, I, I agree with you, Megan. Max is very different than the other white characters in the novel, um, and and I think his Jewishness is important to that. Also, like his his sort of like his his um, his political outlook, his communism, like does it like it's it's um it, it's not like my my sense with like Jan and Mary is that their quote unquote communism is basically like left liberalism, but kind of you know wanting to be sort of like rebellious in some way. I mean, Max, yeah. I actually do, do think in in to it's like the kind of structure and the sort of impossibility of standing outside of the structure. But nevertheless, like the, what is the one thing I wanted to add to what you read from that final scene in the jailhouse is that Max having offered this very like compelling and I think on point structural critique of like what produces like what racism produces. Um, he is like personally devastated not by what's like happening to bigger, but by what bigger is saying, like in this final scene. Right. So like this is back to to, to the lines that you were reading. I didn't want to kill bigger shouted, but what I killed for, I am, it must've been pretty deep in me to make me kill. I must've felt it awful hard to murder as you read. Um, Max lifted his hand to touch bigger, but did not. So already there, there's like this kind of novelistic kind of impulse there. Um, No, no, no bigger. Not that Max pleaded despairingly. What I killed for must have been good. Bigger's voice was full of frenzied anguish. It must have been good. When a man kills, it's for something. I didn't know I was really alive in this world until I felt things hard enough to kill for him. It's the truth, Mr. Max. I can say it now because I'm going to die. I know what I'm saying real good, and I know how it sounds, but I'm all right. I feel all right when I look at it that way. Max's eyes were full of terror. Several times his body moved nervously as though he were about to go to Bigger but he stood still. And like, so one reason why I I wanted to talk about this specifically is like Max, like, you know, I mean, he's, he's done a really kind of compelling analysis in the courtroom of the conditions that made someone like bigger Thomas essentially inevitable. And yet, like when we're in that kind of like individual sort of moment, he still, his reaction is not like, well, yes, foregone conclusion. This is, it is like kind of horror and despair at like the level of like kind of an individual or maybe like despair about the impossibility of having the kind of like individual uh, experience or like a connection that, that Mm -hmm. the liberal subject wants to have. You know what I mean? Well, the thing also is like, so, so he ends in this, in this horror but he he starts like when we meet him he starts in this like cheerfully like let's get to not che- not cheerfully but like in this like this like he has this like go getter attitude about the the case and he's and he like even sort of his thing is that he says to the i think it's the the DA or something like oh are you worried you won't be able to kill him before the election right, yeah. so he's like 
he has these like political purposes in mind and he is able to do this like really compelling analysis but there is this something that's like that's sticky for him like he there's no way for him to see it outside of like structural power relationships and then like also reckon with the person that's yeah. standing mm-hmm. in front right. of him. Well, he can't really think that it would be you know like it's empirically r- wrong to like white supremacy as like a to- a totality is wrong yeah and this is not a person that we want redeemed right right and sort of holding those two those two positions in your head at the same time right that like that that yeah and and i think and right and again that why why right gives us the protagonist who does not who does not like uh, allow for sympathy at the individual level in the way that the novel has educated us to look for i mean the the idea right is that that like that impossibility attunes us much more carefully to the big structure right it's not the individual yeah. is no longer our access point to that uh, because ultimately it's not about the individual but but why that last scene that i find so interesting and like really like troubling um is because like he's still you know but that's still it's like that that is still like felt as like profound loss right like the the the, the, oh, the yeah. you know what i mean and and, and I, that's what i think max is getting at like yes i mean max gets the structure but when you see the result at the level of the individual it is still like tragic in in a way that mm-hmm. is kind of like back into like the the sort of novelistic individual um you know i mean it's like it's yeah. It's wrong, but it's like, I don't know. It's He's having a hard time making it particular because he wants that character. Max wants Bigger to be particularized and like he wants him to be redeeming in some way. Mm-hmm. And and so like once he's becomes doomed, although again, we know he's doomed all along, uh, he he slips in and out of particularity. Right, right. There, and there's something about that slipping in and out of particularity that has to do with like not just determinism but also like where you are in time like by the time we get there like the reason why everything's predetermined is because everyone keeps saying this all the time like we've gotten there too late mm-hmm. like by the time you know like everyone's like oh um even the daltons are like oh well like we wanted to we thought we could save you um but it, like you know um we want to give you an education bigger like we wanted to give you all these things and now we can't do anything for you like it's too late it's too late it's too late like and by the time we get to the store by the time we open the book and he's like killing a rat with a frying pan it's already too late like you can see in the way that he he like orchestrates the killing of the rat that like in fact there is something about like like there's something about that like it's a very smart way of going about it but it goes awry because the rat jumps on his yeah. Right. like yeah um, so i think there's something like there's something there's something there like this is what always this is what's what gets me about this book is that it's just like you see stuff or like i see stuff and i have no idea what it what to do with it when he talks about in in the uh the essay how bigger was born he talks about that sort of like persona he talks about it with little kids right mm. yeah he talks about his own experience as a little kid and being like bullied 
by a certain kind of uh, other little kid who's so enraged and frustrated with the sort of like his his position in the structure that he he becomes that that um right sees sees this type as occupying all these different you know even even little kids have it right yeah well and and also like uh katie i'm glad you took us back to that moment with with the rat because um i I just want to say like uh megan one one thing that really like taught me a lot more just kind of about the histories of this novel um was a uh, was part of a lecture that you heard you do um on when you're talking about the kitchenette in chicago right and just like yeah. that like what these living conditions did look like um which are just i mean horrible and 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 uh, you know that just like that the, the struggle you're talking about like the experience of being bullied and, and feeling that as a little kid when you think of like all of the material conditions as being part of what that what that bullying and what that feeling the force of kind of white supremacism looks like um you know it, just even at the space in which you live you know which i mean sounds like a very basic point but i also think it's a super important point to to some of the stuff right right is getting at because it's like a super concentrated space right so it's like um dalton and and other like landlords produce these conditions of of artificial scarcity and so like black people are paying tons more money for their like tiny shitty kitchenette apartments which is like a space of concentrated capital yeah and and could and could you tell us what a kitchenette apartment was at this time sure it's um it's like a one or two room um space that has like yeah a kitchenette which is like not really a full kitchen it's just like it's barely enough and it's usually a bunch of people live in it. So in that first scene in Native Son, he talks a lot about how nobody has any privacy. Right. Yeah. So the he and his brother have to turn their backs when their sister is changing. Right. Yeah. And 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 when and and you see that to, you, like so that that we see that at the individual level with that scene, but then in the in the flight uh uh book um where he's kind of where he's running through like all of these these kind of black neighborhoods on the south side, you see that like over and over again as he's like seen into windows and as the police are looking into windows just like the like this extremely concentrated uh, uh you know amount of like just population in these very kind of um claustrophobic conditions yeah so it's like a it's a and and there's it's worth noting too that their kitchenettes are are cut-ups of buildings that were initially supposed to house like two families and they're made into like smaller and smaller units and you can hear the people next to you because the way that they restructured them is like uh using like really shitty partitions so um in no way you have like no privacy <laughs> and and often shared bathrooms too right yes yeah well and that that other the scene tristan where like he's he's um like trying to find he's trying to find a hiding place in these like as the things are closing in on him the scene that he sees in the apartment is like children who are watching i think their parents have yeah. sex or like i don't know if, i don't who, who knows who it is but like and they i think they don't have any clothes on like it's that kind of like or the the children don't either so it's like that kind of like there is no separation between anything like you have no moment of like like it, it's at that it's at that level where like you just like 
fuck in front of the kids because you don't have anywhere to there's not a single piece of of privacy or space or anything there's nothing which, for you which is like um a, a fairly common story of like the 19th century tenement in urban cities but this mm-hmm. and again I, I mean i know this is 1940 so it's at some historical remove from us but that's not part of what the narrative of booming industrial america is supposed to be you know what i mean like these are right. these are conditions that i do think are like they, they just run so counter to like the the national like the white national self-conception of what the nation is right absolutely well and again it's like it uh it produces a version of space that is like clearly like physical but also um i don't know like affective well that's also like a big sh- that that's like a all you have is shame because you're not allowed to have any. Right. Like, like because you can't have any privacy. Like, you just have this, like, total – like, that's why I think Bigger goes from this, like, total – like, he goes from, like, that that classic, like, swing from being, like, grandiosity to abjection is all about the space that he, like – and have mm-hmm. like that he lives in with his fam- with his family like he wants like even the stuff with again to go back to the rat like he is so he's so close with everyone that he like dangles it in front of his sister's face and she faints yeah. and it's like that scene i mean we could talk about that for 2 hours like but that's part of it too is like he has this moment of like in this abjection of like finding the rat he can like dangle it in front of someone's face and and cause some kind of pain and like make something happen. Right. And that's another version of like, is he, is he like the agential character in being a sadist? I think that's, I think that's like what it, I think that's the only space that there is for, like, what else can you do in that space except be a sadist? Like, yeah. like that's the question. Well, or be like a, um, a, or, or like another path of determinism, which is, can you be like a religious, right? Like that's what his mother is. Right. Is someone yeah. who relies well, on like, this institution, a different kind of institution. And that's also about um that's about like feeling as if um like you can be liberated spiritually by like total surrender, which is a which is a uh, which is a religious thing that has like a long history and like complicated in this particular context too. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's like you can either turn the aggression on yourself or like or you can blot yourself out as like Bessie does with her with her she drinks to forget how fucking shitty her yeah. life is um or you can like do this or you can like or you can be a sat like or you can be a sadist like are these the opportunity are these the paths like are these the opportunities mm-hmm. are these the choices are those right, choices? Right, that's I think is another question. Is like, do these even count as choices? And I guess killing somebody is the most dramatic of those. Yeah, they, well, they're 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 agency that leads nowhere, right? You know, like they they yeah. don't they they don't um like well with the murder, right? There, like, there's no there. It, it doesn't it it doesn't solve anything. Quite the opposite. It, it but it. You know, like, but also, well, uh, you know, and like when he kills Mary, like, I mean, we do like 
it is fear that's driving that, right? Like he's in the room of a white bedroom of a white woman, like, you know, I mean, which, you know, under the white supremacist state, there's like one that, that, that gets read one way, like exclusively. So like, we understand why, like kind of an an act of just like sort of felt necessity, just like the, 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 the situation closing in. But then, like what what he wants to do with that is that, like, oh, I, I finally acted, or I finally felt something other than fear after that, right? But like, you know what I mean? It just it doesn't. It's not. <laughs> it doesn't lead anywhere. You know what I mean? It, right, it, and it's still structurally legible. Yes, yes. Right, like it's not as though this is this is utterly like again. It's like it leads nowhere, and it's not outside of the system. Right. It's uh, that. It's it's completely like something that that capital recognizes, right? Well, and and I think too that like why like how this would differ from a certain kind of like like liberal analysis of structural conditions is like I, I feel like the kind of liberal narrative around this would would want to sort of reduce this to something about like like bad pedagogy in some way right mm-hmm. like that like oh you're you 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 suffer like economic deprivation and, and racism and therefore you're just not you're just not educated to behave the way you're supposed to whereas this is saying like no like that whole concept how you're quote supposed to behave is like impossible or only leads in one direction given these kind of structural circumstances. Um, and yeah, it might manifest in different ways. It might not be sadism. It might be like, uh, you know, self-medication. It might be the kind of like, what in this novel is, is positive is like the delusion of religion, but it doesn't, you're, you're it, you know, it's not that you've been educated badly. It's that you just like that whole account of what agency is just doesn't work in these conditions. Well, because in part is that we are, we cannot pity him. And that's part of what, that would be a determinism that Wright would like, really despise right 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 so it's like he has to be a monster (laughs) right because we can't we can we can recognize him as a figure this is like the sign the sign or like the structural form that max keeps returning to but we can't think of him as like as a pitiable you know it would be a failure of this novel if he's little eva right or am I reading right. her wrong? Katie always you always have these like smart <laughs> things to say about Uncle Tom's Cabin that I'm like, oh, I never had that thought. <laughs> oh no, I mean like like with with her, I mean you're well, that's interesting because you're also not supposed to you're not supposed to pity her. You're supposed to like cry over her pitying everybody else. Oh, okay. Um, and uh yeah, so like there's so there like there's that there's that part, but like, there's something funny about the way that like, there's also no, there's also no outside of, um, outside of institutions in that novel either. Like there is no outside. Like the thing that I constantly harp on is that, um, when, when uncle Tom dies at the end of that, he says, God has bought me now. Oh shit. Which is like, okay. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So like, in a so, so there's a way that like, yeah, no, I know that Wright is responding to that novel and it's really important. And I think that there's like riffs on it somehow, yeah, you sure. know, like. Um, well, he doesn't, he's, there's like that great moment near the end where he like rips his cross off. Right. Yeah. Right. Because it's like he, uh, it's not that he can't be bought because everyone is already property. Right. 
It's just that he has these gestures where he's trying to get outside of that, but they don't, they don't inhere. Part of this, I mean, the, the question of determinism for me is partly that like, this is how the novel needs it to work, right? Like you're always feeling the heavy hand of, of the like implied author. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no, I mean like, but that again, I think is like, that's a riff on Uncle Tom's Cabin too. Yeah, because the heavy hand of the implied author in that is like God. Right. Right. In a bizarre way. But it's a super like again, it's like a it's like a heavy fist. It's not it's not ever that you feel like you could sort of like uh wander around in this book without the presence of like um I think it is right, but I think it's like you know, I, I'm too new critical in some way that I have to say the implied author. <laughs> um, okay. And then like the other thing that I, I think we all want to talk about is that like, uh, this is a novel that's really, really about institutions for me. And again, that's sort of like a question of uh, the, the question of determinism is like, to which degree institutions are em- embroiled in that. But like, okay, so Katie, I got to ask you about the religious thing. Uh, yeah, so, so there's a, I think the, probably the most memorable, I don't know, for me at least, scene um, related to religion in this, aside from when he, like, he rips the cross off that the, um, that, that his mom's um, uh, pastor or reverend has, has given to him, um, is like that scene where he gets right. it. And so that scene where he gets it is, um, so, so first we have like this, this, uh, this guy coming in who is like a man of God who wants to save his soul and he wants to promise him some kind of um, a, a nice place where everyone can go meet and and be together yeah. in the end. And then immediately we have this thing that happens, which is like his whole family and all his friends and like Jan and the Daltons, they like all flood in after this, after this man of God, right. you know, like he's the entry point to everyone like the family and the like we start having these conversations with the cops and we start having like his lawyer come in we have the law in this different way that's not so that's not quite as dissociated as we get from bigger in those first moments of after his capture because he's basically like he won't eat he won't drink like there's no there's like nothing for three days um and like there's there's a couple i'm just noting a couple like novelistic things and one is like i you know this is kind of it's not a realist novel but it's like indebted to the realist novel that he shoves all of his characters in a cell that's pretty funny um but also that like you can see Wright's distaste in that he writes the preacher in dialect yeah he does and Wright like really is very careful about how he does that it's so strikingly different from um from the rest of the character's speech yeah. like in anywhere else 
And something I had wondered about that, too, is if that was so big. We know that Bigger was born in Mississippi and basically had to, you know, he and his family fled to Chicago after a lynch mob killed his killed his dad or there was a, there was a riot that, 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 you know, when his dad was murdered. But like um, but that there's something there's something like marked as like not of this northern urban space about about the preacher. Like, that's how I had read it. Oh, but yeah. what you guys are saying, actually. Like, yeah, that, that, that it, yeah, that, that I'm, that's making me think a little bit different about like what dialect is supposed to signal there. I mean, I think he, like, Katie, you might have a more sophisticated reading of this right through. I mean, like is very critical of the black church. He really mm-hmm. thinks that like religion period is just like useless, not useless, but like he thinks that it's, um, it's fault. It's a false point of view. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder about the difference for right between the religion and the church. Like, is there a difference for him or not at I all? I mean, I that's a great question. I I'm just like recalling the um the stuff he writes about in Twelve Million Black Voices, where he's just like um the he thinks the the black church is like utterly unhelpful because it's like not um it's it's a it's a matter of of like thinking your way toward liberation or like feeling your way toward liberation instead of like attacking an economic system which again right. is like it's a sort of a clunky <laughs> yeah clunky point of view it, it well it's sure and i mean obviously like with you know like uh, the the black church like central in organizing and the civil rights struggle i mean martin luther king being you know one of the, the most famous examples but i mean but like at the same time there is a long standing and, and i think not without you know, with merit critique of like Christianity in the United States period as being kind of a narrative that initially the plantation class, but then, you know, more broadly, just kind of white sort of capitalist society uses as a way of like basically encouraging like, well, yeah, okay, so focus on focus on the afterlife. And then you don't like focus on the crushing material conditions of the of the of the of the of of your life. I think there's even like I I think that's I think that's true. I think there's also like this thing where just Christianity itself is 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 about is about like if you can find liberation, it's about liberation through submission, right. mm. and and that is like there, there are it doesn't it, it grates against um like it's not about the like we're not having the revolution right you know right. like but at least in in that like way that you have to like you have to submit yourself like the, I, the all this language in christianity about being like being a servant right. and all like and all this stuff and not to say that that rhetoric doesn't get co-opted to oppress people because it fucking does like in in a million ways especially like in the united states so like all of that is true it's like i guess my question kind of was like is is right is Wright's issue with the and he's not here, so can't can't ask <laughs> yeah. him. But um, is it like the fundamental problem with? Does he have a fundamental problem with that, or does he have a problem with um, like the way that that gets weaponized? Because I think I think they're I think those are two different things, yeah. and maybe sometimes they're not, and people don't always know what their motivations are and stuff. Um, I mean, I think but that seems like that com- he's like. His critique of institutions for me goes all the way down, even into institutions that I think mon- many of us would find to be redeeming, like the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Like yeah, we think yeah. the family is an institution that actually like um, shores us up in some way because like people should be like, but I think that in this book, like every institution is, is asking you to submit to it. Right. Yeah. And okay. So th- this is making me think of this moment in that, that essay, how, how bigger was born, right. Where he kind of, he telescopes way, way out beyond the context of, of the United States. Um, and so, and I just want to read this, this one passage and, and Megan, I'm, I'm really curious, like, what your thoughts are, well, like how, how he's like connecting these things together. Um, but okay. So uh, this, this, this is from how bigger was born, but more than anything else as a writer, I was fascinated by the similarity of the emotional tensions of bigger in America and bigger in Nazi Germany and bigger in old Russia. All bigger Thomas as white and black felt tense, afraid, nervous, hysterical, and restless from far away. Nazi Germany and old Russia had come to me items of knowledge that told me that certain modern experiences were creating types of personalities whose existence ignored racial and national lines of demarcation, that these personalities carried with them a more universal drama element than anything I'd ever encountered before, that these personalities were mainly imposed upon men and women living in a world whose fundamental assumptions could no longer be taken for granted a world ridden with national and class strife, a world whose metaphysical meanings had vanished, a world in which God no longer existed as a daily focal point of men's lives, a world in which men could no longer retain their faith in an ultimate hereafter. It was a highly geared world whose nature was conflict and action, a world whose limited area and vision imperiously urged men to satisfy their organisms, a world that existed on a plane of animal sensation alone. Um, so yeah, I just I don't like I mean I feel like that it, it, yes, it's about like sort of like the the effective institutions, but it like at least in that, you know, in that however we want to take that essay as a guide for how we want to read this book, it's all it's like almost an endemic problem of like modernity, right? And and mm-hmm. I, but anyway, I'm just yeah, I'm just I I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what what to do with that with that. I mean, for me it's like modernity under the conditions of capital, right? Like he's so explicit about that that it's like nationalism and class. Right. Yeah. That it's like that uh, modernity warps what might be like the capacity to be analytical, <laughs> right? Like to see something like class solidarity mm-hmm. because all that he's operating in is this series of just like animal gestures mm-hmm. because he's so determined. Right. Does that sound wrong? No, it, it does. But it just, it, it like, because this is, this is, I mean, like racism and, and structures of racism and white supremacy are such like, a like are so much what the critique of this novel is about. I mm-hmm. guess like what I then is like, oh, well, so, okay. So ultimately does he see that as a symptom of another problem? Does he see that as like a giant problem that'll exist a lot? Like it, it's one of a few, like, like huge problems problems that are structure are coming to structure the modern world in these very troubling and unsettling ways. I mean, I see him, I think he sees them as like interlocked. Mm-hmm, right. Right. Like not, uh, this isn't a version of like, um, white supremacy is only, a uh, like a after effect of, of, of capital because there's no version where you can't, where you have to, where you can think those things independently of each other. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So it, it's not, it's not doing the, the like dopey leftist thing of basically class is the only thing that matters. It's it, the, right. The class and white, like capital and white supremacism, like you just said, are they're inseparable from each other. Right. And, and then again, like this is very 1940s that he's like nationalism. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Like nationalism is another way of like where we see institutions as as going so deep in the production of a psyche that there's no version. There's no way that like this 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 portion of the the population who has the psychology is so utterly institutional that there's no that every institution is is troubling right so like again it's things like the family right yeah that are like institutions that we think of as as like we we exempt some of them we want to from our version of like horrible structuring institutions like the prison which we all recognize is like bad (laughs) right yeah right yeah because this is like when I think, uh, you know, again, I, I sort of mentioned that like every time I read this, I have a new version of it. And one of them recently that Tristan and I talked about in our class was like that this is a, this book for me is like a way that you can think about the prison being everywhere. Yeah. No, because definitely. he is doing prison subject from the first page. No, he is. It's it's like it is the sort of like the, the panopticon and it's like most it's largest and most, uh, uh, you know, violent form. Uh, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it is like, yeah, actually Foucault, uh, discipline and punish is, a is helpful here. Um, I, I also too, like, well, and, and sort of like I have one, I think one institution that becomes part of that, right? Like the press, that moment in the basement where oh, yeah. like there, there's suddenly all these reporters appear and like, it'll be having better reporter. I have to, I mean, like reporters are pushy. It could be assholes, but like the <laughs> idea of them, like suddenly infesting your basement, uh, like that is, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit like, uh, I, although again, it's the 1930s. So maybe that's a little, you know, that, uh, that is a little bit easier to, to see that happen, you know, not behind like a court off area but but well, they're, they're almost indistinguishable from cops they're almost in, yes exactly and like the narrative that they are producing and and we do get these like all these like like horrible like kind of newspaper stories throughout the book like what they're writing about him like they are producing the narrative of the police state and like there's this one i mean in particularly terrible one where like they they invited like this editor of a mississippi newspaper to be like oh yeah see this is what happens when you don't have lynch mobs you know it's and right and, and again like having read like 1930s and 1940s newspaper accounts like all of that tracks with like shit that got printed and not that totally. the, the modern the contemporary press doesn't reproduce racism all the time but you know and his files right has a ton of clippings from newspapers yeah yeah from the 30s of this case that he sort of like very loosely used as yeah. as his it's like i always think of the book that I love hate, which is like the Dreiser American tragedy, which mm-hmm. is another like true crime sort of based on a real thing mm-hmm. um, where the guy kills somebody. Dreiser is so good. <laughs> Just- but I think he's like, right. Like he's good. Uh, and also his novels are like not well, super well constructed. Right. Yeah. Although again, I, I mean, I do think Wright is a really, really good writer. I think that this novel reads like this because he's like, "Oh, you want to read a novel? Fuck you!" Like, you know, that's not. No, I, I totally agree. <laughs> like, he's just not. He would be fully. He is fully capable of producing a novel that has the shape of a novel. Yeah. But he won't. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. fuck you and your expectations of what a novel's supposed to do. Yes, exactly. Um, but if we think again, like I know I keep going back to this, the notion of like the prison is everywhere. That that's like all it's you know you have to be you have to remember that like everything goes wrong for him Mm -hmm. yeah right like because the novel 
makes it so because the the people who are in part who are part of the institutions are also fully dumbasses. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can't like if you wrote a book where the Chicago cops were like so awesome at solving crimes, I'd be like this is the worst. Like you no. don't know anything. No, right. And I mean that yeah, that that's, you know, um, <laughs> not to bring, you know, I, I, Arendt's banality of evil gets overused. Uh, but, but I mean, I think it also is a super perceptive point about the way institutions do perpetuate, you know, um, and, and also that they don't, you know, critical thought is not something that the institution wants or encourages, you know, no. like, um, uh, no, no, no. But, and this, again, it's like, all of this is, uh, is we can see it in that in those last couple scenes where Max does the like, uh, here's here's institutionality, here's white supremacy, here's class inequality, and here's yeah. how they construct this person. Totally. And um, one of the ways that they construct him, and this is like a thing I'm always saying about this book, is that like uh, he's ultimately institutionally determined because he's tried for the one crime he hasn't committed. Yes. Right. Yes. Like we know we know he's a murderer and we know that he's a rapist but he didn't rape mary it's like the yeah. one thing he didn't do and that the prison is that's the one thing that it finds most legible okay katie i'm gonna assume this isn't gonna be a super fun game uh it's not gonna be a fun game but like you know how you know how kind of this book just a little bit just makes you feel like just like shit yeah. yes <laughs> yeah. it's exhausting well, our closing question it's exhausting. And so our closing questions are about shit. <laughs> and it's and it's about and and because this is from this is a Chicago book, it's about shit in Chicago. Okay. okay. So we just have a few questions about shit. Um, and I assume you mean so. the Chicago cops. <laughs> I mean I well, every okay, time I've I mean, ever interrupted interacted with the Chicago police officer, I think like because I'm bourgeois, every time I interact, I'm like, oh, I could fully get away with murder. <laughs> most no, most definitely. Like the only crime that I can't get away with is the the like the the white lady crime of doing 40 in a 25. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Although right now you can do 70 in an anything. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there were like people popping wheelies in um in uh on motorcycles. Um, okay, sorry, but uh, I don't know if this sh- that's what shit means here. But please go ahead. No, it means doo doo. Oh, cool. Okay, uh, okay. Uh, it means it means actual poop out okay. of your butthole. Um, just to be clear. Um, and then we also have a question about um about a different kind of shit. Well. Mm, it's a it it's a lot about excretion. Okay. okay. Um so uh I I have to ask, um, and I'll give you a range or you can just sort of guess. Um okay, so there's this there's this uh great to keep in keeping with the uh the the landlord. This is the this is the different sort of shit question. Um but there's this this famous landlord in Chicago called Pangea and there's a good article about them. They're named Pangea to quote reflect their world dominance aspirations. Uh, no shit. Uh, um, that was a joke that the CEO made. And um beautiful. They, when I mean, they were asked like <sighs> the veil falls from all of our eyes, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Um 
this guy also was on a uh, talk show called um, Bootstrapping in America. Oh, um, Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> And um and and when when um I think I think it was on this show. There's a good article that that we can I can tweet for people about this. But um he says like oh what's your like long term business plan? And the guy said our long term business plan is to own forever. Oh my god. Um, awesome. So this is the only this is the only well this is a doo doo in a different in a different way. Um, but uh, between 2009 and um, 2013, would you like to venture a guess about um, what percentage their revenue grew by? Uh, it could be a number between 1 and 13,000. 13,000. I was going to guess about 2,000. Okay. It's it's actually over 13,000. <gasps> oh, my God. Uh. Fuck. Burn it all down. Um, yeah. Um, here's another. Here's another uh, super fun fact here. Um, so, so they owned um, 7,500 properties uh, in in uh, Chicago and like mostly black Chicago neighborhoods. Um, anyone want to venture guess as to how many evictions they filed? Uh, thirteen thousand. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, so thirteen thousand percent. Um, that'd be eleven hundred. Nice. Maybe. Oh, that was this is between that that was in 2018. Um, so that's that's the one kind of shit, and we're gonna move from that kind of shit, um, so to rant, a different kind strike, of shit. Rent strike, rent strike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. It's, I mean, it would be useful right now. We all know a bunch of fucking yeah. you know bartenders. Yep. Let's do that. Um, do you want some actual poop doo doo questions? Because I have some of those too. Um, like, for instance, uh, what percentage of the water in the Chicago River comes directly from the doo-doo factory? Oh, um, man. So, like, uh, treatment plants? Half? Uh, Tristan, uh, you want to guess? All of it? 70%. Oh, my God. So, Ed, Ed we, you, you guys know uh, the, the deal with the Chicago River, right? That it, that it made a doo-doo? No, well, we know it was rerouted. Yes, it was re. No, it was re. Yes, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Because of doo-doo, it was like yes. it was po- it was poisoning like Michigan with all of the doo-doo, and so they reverse the flow, so it flows like downstate now. And, and this is one of the stories that, like you know, like Chicago, like neolib dipshits will be like, see, this shows anything the city could do. We could we could make our shit flow downstate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I 70, love living here so much. Sev- what a seventy percent, seventy fucking percent of that river yeah. is is water from. Okay, all right. It's been treated. If that makes you feel better, yeah. this won't make you feel better though. Um, if you remember the famous incident where the Dave Matthews mm-hmm. Band um dumped shit onto Chicago River cruisers, never yeah. forget. Um, how many pounds of human waste? Do you recall how many pounds of human waste that was? Wasn't like it eight, was like a ton, right? Was, oh, okay. I was gonna say it was like eight hundred. It was 800. Okay, yeah. So you're both pretty much right on that one. <laughs> a metaphorical I, ton and 800 pounds, yeah. And also, like, <laughs> you know, expect nothing less from Dave Matthews' band. Exactly. Crash exactly. into my shit. <laughs> <laughs> a little Weird Al Yankovic for us. We got a guest on the pod. It's Weird yeah. Al. <laughs> Love that guy. <laughs> 
Um, and here's one more question about two cities um, with racist police departments. And um, one is Chicago, spoiler alert. But uh, have you guessed the other Boston, one? Boston, Los, Los Angeles, Angeles, New York, Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, in, South in, Bend, in, Indiana. All of them. Every of single them. one. Yeah, the police as the, the, the police. The capital P, capital, all the capital letters. Um, Okay. In 2019, a drunk man vomited into a woman's hair on a flight from Chicago to what East Coast city with a racist police department? Philly. Yeah, that's Philly. That's got to be Philly. It was Baltimore. Oh, it was Baltimore. Oh, man. But all right. No, I I can see that. I can can see that. (laughs) So... so this concludes our edition of Everything is Fucking Shit. <laughs> oh, that, you know, I think especially that everything is fucking shit means the Chicago cops is how I've come to see this. I can get on board with that statement. Also, my like, landlord is stuck in Guatemala because he was like doing a hippie, uh, some kind of like hippie tourism bullshit. And so he's like, then <laughs> loan me my money. And I want to be like. Uh, but what if no. they don't? <laughs> no, I won't be doing that. Thanks. Because he was like, bye. oh, it's my whole income. And I was like, oh, sorry. Like, that's how is that my problem? Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. What a lovely person. <laughs> um. Okay. This has, like, been a lovely but depressing conversation. Anyway, so uh, this has been Better Than Dead. You can find me on twitter at tuslersaurus you can find katie on twitter at katie crywo you can find tristan on twitter at tj schweiger you can find the show on twitter and instagram at better red pod r-e-a-d and email us at better at gmail.com but only if you have even more depressing questions than the ones we've already asked about native son uh, our intro music is Left Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review us and subscribe. Um, we are very excited. Our Melville Spectacular is coming up with a wonderful guest and it's going to be off the hook. So thank you, comrades. Comrades.